This was something that was new to me until I um, went out to eastern Kentucky to be a pastor of a small church out in the country. Uh, I had no idea this type of thing existed, but um, I found out it's not isolated in eastern Kentucky. This is prevalent throughout the world. This whole concept of, of male dominance in the relationship, it is really um, impresses me, um, not in a positive way necessarily. Um, but I remember, and I think I've told you this before, but I just want to tell those who've never heard this, that my first wedding uh, was a, a young couple in their early 20s. And when they came, I said, okay, I was asking all these questions, you know, this is my first wedding, I don't know what to ask, what to do, what to say. And so I'm just asking lots of questions, and, and this is basically what the guy says. My job is very easy. I go to my place of employment Sunday evening through Thursday evening. He worked on the highway department on bridges and that kind of thing. He says, I will be gone those, all those days. When I get back on Thursday night, I start getting ready to go hunting and fishing, whichever the season is, and I will be gone from Thursday evening through Sunday. I will be gone that whole time. And so her job is to raise the kids, after she gives birth to them, of course, to raise the kids, to clean the house, to put food on the table when I am there, and to not complain about it. And I was just, I was amazed. And I looked at her and I said, Jamie, what do you have to say about that? I'm good with that. And I said, in what world are you good with that? And, and that was how her mom was. That was how her grandmother was and all the other couples in the community. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. So I started asking questions of other people in the church. And they would all say, yes, the Bible says wives submit to your husbands. And I said, oh my gosh, this is a rampant theology principle that is true in the church, and they believe it's biblically mandated, so I need to study this a little more deeply. I will tell you that here it has been uh, 26 years after the fact, that young couple is still married. They're still married, they're still committed and devoted to each other, and he is still gone all the time. Never attended church. She always came by herself with the kids. Interesting. So anyway, we come to this principle, this concept of marriage. And, and so the, the overarching umbrella is this, the concept of home improvement. If we want to improve our home life, if we want to improve our family lives, what do we have to do? What do we have to, to ponder in regards to the relationship of marriage in order to get a better grasp on this so that we have a healthier environment for our kids and so we can educate them well as well? And so I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 1, if you would, because I think this all starts in the very beginning. Uh, you can write down these passages, and I'll read them, and you can check them out later. But of course, like I do, I like to go through and highlight certain words and themes and connect the dots, and we'll see what we can get into. But in chapter 1 of Genesis 26 through 28, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then if you would skip down to Genesis 2, 18 through 25. This is a very interesting passage. If you've never really studied it, I encourage it just because it's entertaining to some degree. But in Genesis 2, 18 through 25, I won't read all of it, but I'll kind of allude to it. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the women's ribs or one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. So, so to go back to this for just a second and highlight a couple things uh, in this Genesis 2 passage. It says in verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then it says that the Lord God formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the field and all of the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Now remember, it started in verse 18 with this phrase, we need to find a helper suitable for man. And then God had all of the animals that he had created from the dust, the same dust that he created Adam, and he had them parade in front of him. And as they paraded in front of him, he had two purposes, one to name them, the second one to challenge his own heart to see if he found any interest on an intimate level on each of the animals. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? Every animal, God brought them by to say, well, maybe he would be attracted to the zebra or the goat or to whatever else. And, no, and, and Adam actually looked at every animal and pondered in his spirit, is this suitable for me? Luckily, luckily, there was none. And he says, no, God, I don't see nothing that interests me. And God says, well, then let me do this. I'm going to cause sleep to come over you, and I will create a suitable helper from your rib. And when God did that, Adam said, basically, daddy likes. Okay? Uh, I don't know how to interpret that better. But anyway, the point is that it was not good for Adam to be alone. That was not good because he had certain desires in him that would have to be checked. It would have to be uh, established in some sort of parameters of healthiness and, and goodness. And, and if there was no helper for him, this would be a problem. But, but the helper is a lot more than just for intimacy. This is a helper in all of life. This is to be a co-equal with him. Never in the scriptures does it say that man should dominate the woman. If you go back a little bit to chapter 1, God created man in his own image. 
And in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then if you read a little bit further, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase. Then it goes on to say, rule over the fish of the sea, over every living creature, everything on earth. You are to rule over it. You are to dominate it. And then it goes on to say, everything I have given you is good for food. So I'm sorry about the vegetarians. And I know not all vegetarians are this way because they don't think it's right to eat uh, meat or to, to kill animals for meat, but that is their purpose. God gave all of these animals for us to consume. That's why he did it. Now, a lot of people say, well, I'm a vegetarian because of the chemicals they spray on it. I get that. Sometimes you might have celiac disease or something else that doesn't allow you to eat meat or gluten or whatever it is. I understand that. Eat whatever you can. But just know, God is not a vegetarian. He was like, yeah, you see that deer? Kill it. Eat it. You'll love it. And he was right about that. So I want to say this. God gave man dominance over everything on creation, but never did he say to dominate his wife. Never did he say that you are better than her, that you are over her uh, in, in some unhealthy. We'll get to how she, he is over her, but never um, this self-imposed authority that you take over her, where you force her into submission. That is never in the, in the Bible. And I know some might com, uh, complain about that, but we can study the Greek and the Hebrew if you want. Uh, but anyway, so this is what stands out. God created us, you and me, male, female. He created us in his image and in his likeness. And there's kind of two different things going on there. An image is something that is not fluid or transitory. It's something permanent. In his image means that his stamp was on it, that there's a similarity between God and his creation. That similarity cannot be diminished or increased. It cannot be put aside. It is always constant. You and I, whether we're sinful, whether our sin would make a, a sailor blush or, or a preacher... Uh, Holier, I don't know what to say about that, but it doesn't matter. Whatever your condition, God created you and me in his image. So I do believe that if you look into the mirror just right or the mirror of scripture just right, you will see God's face smiling back at you, looking deeply into your heart because he created it. He knit it together. He is part of you. Regardless of whether or not you recognize him or not in this world, he still made you in his image. It also says that he created us in the uh, likeness of him. Likeness is fluid. It is transitory. It can be increased or decreased. This is about character. It's about sustenance of, uh, of, eth- of, uh, of being ethical. It is about love and grace and goodness. It's about all of those things wrapped into who God is. Not so much what he is, but who he is. And because of who he is, this is what he does. So we have the ability. Our sin can diminish his likeness in us. People could say, boy, you sure don't act like Jesus. You sure don't act like God. And that's not a a pat on the back. There are certain things that we do that confuses the world, bless you. There's things that we do in this world where the world looks at us and says, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I think I will opt out. We understand that. I understand that. I've been one of those people. I've done things that would make God very embarrassed. 
but yet in his likeness, I also um, have been able to reverse that with his help. I've been able to be convicted of that, to repent of that, confess of that. And now he has changed those parts of my life that were so embarrassing to him originally. So we are created in his image and in his likeness. But again, how much in his image or likeness, that's really up to you and to your humility. It goes on to say in the second passage that it was not good for man to be alone. God created for him a helper, a helper, someone to be there with him, to do all the things that he did, to mirror the things that he did, and for the right purposes. There was one other thing here that I had, and I don't see it. Oh, point four was this. God's vision in creation. The vision is in chapter one. The actual uh, fulfillment of the vision is chapter two. But in his vision, let us create God. Let us create man in our image and likeness. And in chapter two, he actually did it when he formed Adam out of the dirt. It's interesting that Adam was formed out of the dirt and all the animals were formed out of the dirt, but yet he set man apart for different purposes. Why is that? Because he gave man the ability to reason. He gave man the ability to speak and to communicate. He gave man the ability to exercise spiritual power, to pray, to be intimately connected to the Father. Animals can't do that. And that's why he set us apart and and put us in a position of dominance over all of them, because we were different. He saw something unique in us. He, he, he created us for the purpose of relationship. And, and, and so it's also important to know that the helper for him is intended for marriage. That the, the, the woman doesn't just live on her own and the man live on his own. And occasionally on weekends, they, they get together, you know, just for a good time. That was never his intent. His intent was for marriage, for the relationship to be a bond and a reflection on God. That's why many times throughout Scripture, it kind of intimates that a man's responsibility is to be Christ-like in your home. You are to be like Christ in your home. And I, I just wonder how many of us men are actually like Jesus in regards to our spouses and in regards to our children. I'm sure we would all be a little deficient, wouldn't we? And 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 so in regards to that... Uh, in the marriage is how the children are to be procreated and that we are to rule over creation as a team. So I don't see from the Old Testament witness that we could say that a man should be dominant in the relationship. Now, he will be the head of the relationship, which we're going to find in Ephesians, but not to the point of dominance where I'm better than you, you will, you will be forced to submit to me, and you will do what I tell you. That's just not there. You see, because after God created marriage, and he created this relationship, and he created Adam and Eve, then something unique happened. Sin crept in. Sin crept into their individual lives, and also into their relationship, and into their minds, and they became to, to distort God's original intent. They began to tweak it in a way that would uh, care for them or, or administer to them and, and to match their desires. So because they were like God and not completely like him, they had the ability to distort things. They had the ability to let sin into their desires, their opinions, and their outlook. 
So when we go to Ephesians 5, 22, we can see the, the byproduct of this. And then Paul was trying to call them back into a holy relationship and back into a, a reasonable relationship. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, like I said, when I was in eastern Kentucky, that phrase I would hear all the time was, well, the Bible says the wives are to submit to the husbands. And what I quickly discovered was that's only half of the verse or a portion of the verse. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, when you start unfolding and I can't even talk today. When you start tearing this apart, this gets a little bit deeper. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In other words, in the Greek, it is saying, you submit to the Lord, you submit to your husband. It's not either or, it's both and. As you submit to the Lord, you will submit to your husband. As you submit to your husband, you will submit to the Lord. If any woman in a relationship of marriage does not submit to their husband, then they have not submitted to the Lord. There's no no option here. They're both and. And so as you submit to the Lord, I promise you the Lord is going to convict you. You better submit to your husband also. Now, I know when we stop there, there's going to be ladies thinking, oh, but you don't know what I have to deal with. Well, I haven't gotten through all the, all the verses yet. All right? We haven't completed. This is not a period. Let's move on to the next book. All right? This is continual. It starts here. Wives, you submit to the Lord, and he will tell you to submit to your husband. But it also uses a little two-letter word, as. As. As and like are metaphors. If I remember right from English, I believe they're called similes, right? Keep that in mind as we go through this pericope of Scripture. Because that's very important, something that I guess a lot of people miss. Submit to your husband as you submit to the Lord. They're equally compatible. It goes on to say, for the husband is the head of the wife. We have no problem with that. Uh, hopefully you all don't have any problem with that. Um, here's the concept. God in creation communicated something very clear to me when I have studied and studied that creation narrative. When God created animals, he created them in their likeness. When he created the fish, he created them in groups and in likeness. He, gr- he created them in distinct uh, segments or distinct um, types of fish. When he created birds, he put them in categories. In, in other words, in creation, the very beginning of creation, it says the world was, was formless and void. There was chaos throughout all of creation. And what God did is he stepped into the midst of chaos and he gave it order. That's what he did. He separated the water from the earth to give it order. He created everything in sequence and in segments and in sections in order to maintain order and integrity. He never intended for cats to, to mate with dogs. You know, that was never his thing. Or, or, or to, to create sheep out of a petri dish. That was never his thing. It was all about order. Everything is about order. And in the house, there must be order. Somebody has to be the head. Somebody has to 
to be the spokesman, the go-to, the, the, the one who signs the dotted line of the paperwork. You know, somebody has to be in charge. Too many cooks spoil the broth, right? Too many Indians, uh, I forget what that one's all about, but anyway. Uh, the fact is, too many chiefs can't get anything accomplished, right? There has to be order in the household. So God selected that husband would be the head of the wife. This is a trickle down. This is how he wanted it to be. And this is a reflection of how it is in heaven. But remember that little two word as the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. So if any man wants to figure out, okay, what is expected of me as the head of the house or the head of my wife, how am I supposed to relate to her? How am I supposed to, to, to govern? How am I supposed to, to love? How am I supposed to encourage? How am I supposed to breathe? Then, then that father has to look or this husband has to look to Christ to see how he was the head of the church. Because this is the living metaphor that we have to compare ourselves to. If you want to know how good of a husband you are, compare yourself to Jesus and and watch how he relates to the church. And then you will know if you're a godly person or if you need uh, some improvement. And all of us need some improvement. And and so what I would do in in eastern Kentucky, I would say to these men, uh, can you all show me in the Bible where Jesus told the church to get down on their hands and knees and wash his feet? Can you ever find in the Bible where Jesus said, when I get home from work today, I want my food on the table, so church, get it done? No, he never did that. In fact, Jesus never told the church to do anything. In John 13, what did Jesus do? Uh, The Last Supper, he took off his outer garment. He wrapped the towel around his waist. He got the basin and the bowl, and he got down on his knees, and he washed the feet of his bride. One at a time, as disgusting and dirty as those feet were, he did this, and the scripture said, to show the full extent of his love for his bride. So husbands, if we want to be the head of the house and ahead of our wives and do it effectively and do it godly, then we might need to get on our hands and knees and start do some groveling. Maybe do some servant work. Maybe start washing some feet and kissing some feet and honoring the person in which God has brought into our life to be our helper. Instead of looking down our noses and say, you know what? This food tasted disgusting. You need to go back and do something better. I've heard stories of that kind of thing. So the husband is the head, yes, but only as Christ is the head of the church, which is his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, wives, you should submit to your husbands. This is a metaphor for you. If you want to figure out what is the best way, the most effective way, and the most godly way to submit to my husband, then read about the scripture. Watch the church to see how the church has responded to Christ. I think of when Jesus died on the cross, Nicodemus said, y'all can use my tomb. And they took him down and they washed his body and they anointed him. They put the perfumes in his, his, uh, his tomb and they closed the seal and they were going to come back on Sunday morning to put fresh flowers. This is how they administered 
to the head of the church with love and grace and tears. I mean, think about it. They got up at the crack of dawn on a Sunday morning to go and lay down fresh flowers. I'm sorry, but that was a football day. That's a problem. But that's what the church did. And wives, we should submit to the husbands in a similar fashion. But you see what happens is, and I've I've counseled many couples, I know this happens, and I've done it myself, I've been there. When the wives say, you know what, I'm not going to submit until he starts acting like the head of the church. And until he starts doing this, I'm not going to do this. And the husband will say, well, I'm not going to start acting like the spiritual leader of the household until she starts acting like like the church. And right now, she's not acting like it. And I says, okay, so you're both sinful. You're both wrong. You both have lost touch. You see, what happens is, is that when you let your own needs get in the way of what your responsibilities are, then, like I said a couple weeks ago, you start to become hard-hearted to what God really wants you to be and to do. And the more you become hard-hearted, the more distance that is created between you and your bride, eventually to the point of separation, eventually to the point of disconnect. I've been there. I've done it. It happens. So the, the, the moral of the story is never allow your heart to become hard-hearted. Never allow bitterness to come up in your voice, in your spirit, in your interaction. But always think to yourself, how would Jesus do this? What did he teach me about this? He goes on to say, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church. Again, another metaphor. Love your wives. Well, of course I love my wife, right? I picked her myself, you know. I, she's attractive. I love her. She uh, fathered my children or whatever else you may say. But do you really love her? As Christ loved the church. Well, here's the litmus test. Have you ever gotten on her on your knees and washed her feet? Have you ever gone to the cross for her and died for her that she may be blameless and holy in this world? We've got some work to do. Man, we have got to love our wives. We have to love them. It's, uh, it's an active word. It's present tense. It means ongoing, never diminishing. It is a, it is a mindset I'm going to love my wife, love my wife, love my wife. And all of I say and all that I do, I'm going to love my wife, just as Christ loved the church. And it goes on to say, and he gave himself up for her to make her holy. To make her holy. In the same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, love himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. You see, this whole love concept and and practice is a whole lot different in theory. In theory, 
we put attributes to the amount of love that we have for an individual. And we say, yes, I love you. Of course I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't be here, right? If I didn't love you, I would have left you years ago. Of course I love you. But that is not in comparison to the love that Christ has for the church. You know, a young man, even before he's married, if he says her job is to cook my meals and have them on the table ready for me when I get home from work, that is not love. That is not love. What is love is for the wife to do that willingly in spite of the attitude and the behavior of the husband. That is commendatory. I can't even speak. That's good stuff. (laughs) I commend you for that. That's what I'm trying to say. That's amazing stuff. And to do it for years. I've known women like that that have served their husbands hand and foot that have done absolutely way beyond the call of duty for their spouses. And then those wives pass away. And the husband is a mess. Doesn't know what to do. Doesn't know what day of the week it is. Doesn't know how to function because they didn't have a healthy, loving relationship as Christ loved the church or vice versa. He goes on to say, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. Um, I love myself. I do. I've seen me do it. I love to do things that make me happy. Next week, I'm going to go to uh, Soldier Field and watch the Vikings beat up on the Chicago Bears. That's because that's for me. That's for me. And because the Vikings need me there, I'm a good luck charm. But that is for me. But, but hopefully Paige will attest, never did I say, Paige, I don't care what you think, I'm going to the game, so you watch the kids, you clean the house, I'll be back when I get back. No, the first thing I did was say, hey, honey, is it okay if I go to the game? Yeah. And, and I knew ahead of time that she would say, yes, I want you to go. Because that's how we roll. That's how we, that's how we do it. But do we all think like that? I mean, some would say, yeah, we're still newlyweds. Yeah, hopefully people will always say that. Almost four years now. Hopefully in 40 more years, people would still say, yeah, they're still newlyweds. But as he loves himself, he must love his wife, and the wife must respect her husband. This is another odd thing. If you, use, if you go to the Greek and look at the word respect, you'll come up with a word which is very interesting to me. I was very surprised. It's the word phobitai. Isn't that surprising? No, uh, phobos, phobos is a Greek word for fear. And it means to be terrified of something. If you uh, are claustrophobic, that means you're afraid of closed-in spaces, Right? There's lots of phobias. A lot of you probably have phobias of height or water or overeating or whatever it is. Maybe of going to a football game. Who knows? But there's a lot of phobias. But the wife's respect for her husband is based on fear. But not fear that I'm afraid you're going to hit me if I don't or I'm afraid you're going to quit loving me if I don't. But this is, has an implication of to be in awe or reverence. 
It's a, it's a display of fear. When we say we have a fear of the Lord, it doesn't mean we're afraid of God because we want to please him with our lives. We're afraid of disappointing God. And so here's the same thing. This phobatai, which is a fear in the hearts of women for their husbands, that they want to, they want to honor them. They want to be pleasing to them. But, but this is contingent upon the husband loving them. Well, maybe not contingent. It's a responsibility. I have a responsibility to love you regardless of what you give me in return. And women, your job is to respect your husbands really for regardless what you get in return. Because that's, that's what Christ wants us to do. That's how he wants us to put our faith on display. Because you know what's interesting in this passage, it goes on to say, it's a different passage. Let me share this with you. Put this on for size. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. By the way, that word submissive comes from a Greek word, hypotasomenoi, which means to subordinate or to obey. All right, so it says, wives, in the same way, obey your husbands, submit to your husbands, be subordinate to them, so that if any of them do not believe the word, if you happen to be married to somebody who is not a believer, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. So let's say that Paige has a husband who is not a believer by her reverence to him, by her submissiveness to him, by her love to him, her love for him, it's possible that he could possibly come to faith just because he sees displayed in her this Jesus who died on the cross for the sins of the world, and he may be attracted to that. But I tell you what, if you're a wife and all you have is, well, my mom had a different phrase, something and vinegar that spewed out of your mouth every time you spoke. You know what the other word is? Shame on you. But, but if you, if every time you opened your mouth, you said something derogatory to your spouse, something hateful to your spouse, a criticism of your spouse, he's not going to want anything that you have to sell. He's not going to be interested in anything that you're peddling. But if you show kindness and grace and love and faithfulness to God, I promise you, the scriptures promise you, he will be persuaded because of your behavior. Not because of your words, but by your behavior, by your actions. And it says that when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives, that's what's going to change them. It goes on to say, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair, gold jewelry, fine clothes. Instead, let it be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Verse 7, husbands, in the same exact way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious life. In other words, treat them with respect, the same respect that they're supposed to give you, give them back to them, so that, or because that, you two are co-partners in the heirs of this gracious life that God has given us. Because you're partners. You respect me, I respect you. But I'm going to respect you, even if you don't respect me, 
But isn't it great when it's just a, this common communication of respect and love and grace? That's when marriage is really good stuff. I want you to consider one other thing. If men are supposed to be at the head of the household, what is the wife's responsibility? Um, I, I thought at, at the time that I came up with this on my own because I thought, man, I'm really smart. You know, I'm just really good. And then I found out that other people have been teaching the same thing. Um, so it must have been a God thing. I don't know. But it says if men are supposed to be the head of the household, then women must be the neck. Because a head without a neck is worthless. I found this on a, on a website. It said the bones of the head and the neck play a vital role in the supporting of the brain, the sensory organs, the nerves, and the blood vessels of the head. And protecting these structures from mechanical damage is the neck. Movements of these bones by the attached muscles of the head provide for facial expressions, eating, speech, and head movement. In other words, without the neck, the head is worthless. I don't know about you, but I love eating. I love speech. I, I love head movement. I love being able to turn to the left and to the right, even with degenerative discs. I can still do that. My wife is everything to me. I mean, Christ is first, but my wife is second. Without her, I'm worthless. That's just the way it is. In Genesis 3.16, it says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. But not in an unhealthy way, not in a domineering way, not in an independent or, or rude way or an abusive way, but in a loving and gracious way. We were created to help each other. Now, just as a side note... Uh, I don't really want to say this, but I feel like I'm supposed to say this. Because I've learned in ministry that there's this judgmental tone that comes out sometimes. Uh, When I was uh, uh, married the first time, I I had this attitude that divorced people were, you know, they were lower than me. They were beneath me. I worried, uh, I struggled because a lot of times divorced people, I didn't want them in leadership. I didn't want them having responsibility because I didn't trust them. And I had an attitude about it. And then one day I ended up divorced. And I was like, God, what am I supposed to do with this? And he says, well, I would hope you would change. I'd hope you'd be a little bit more loving and gracious. Um, but, But here's the thing. I got judged a lot when I went through a divorce. And I kept thinking to myself, they have no idea what I've been through. They have no idea what I've been subjected to. They have no idea what I have been going through for so many years. But that's okay, because I know what the scriptures say. And if, they, if I need to be judged by them, then it's okay, you know, whatever. Um, but but here's, here's the thing. I had several people say to me, uh, don't you know that divorce is a sin and now God can't use you and you have no, nothing, you have no business being in ministry, that kind of thing. I thought about my parents. My mom and dad, when they celebrated their 50th anniversary, they said as kids, we want you all to come and celebrate our 50th anniversary. Woohoo! this is a great time. And all of us kids looked at each other 
not literally, but metaphorically. And we thought, are you kidding? We're not going to go and honor that because we know you two have never slept in the same bedroom. We know that, Dad, you've had numerous affairs. We know that you guys did not love each other. So what you're wanting us to come and to celebrate is the fact that legally you maintained a relationship and you lived under the same roof, but that is not a marriage. And so I started studying scriptures about that and praying about that, and, and, and I came to the conclusion that there's two types of, of, of marriage. There's a legal aspect of marriage, and there's a religious marriage. And, and the people who seem to be the most judgmental are the ones that have a terrible marriage. But legally, they're still tied. Look at us, how good we are. But how dare you to separate yourselves? I just want to remind you that for most of the Old Testament and a lot of the New Testament, marriage was not legal. It was spiritual. You were married in the eyes of God. And when you let your heart divide your relationship, you're just as bad off as I am or as bad off as I was. Just because you were stubborn enough to stay in that relationship, that doesn't make your marriage any better than anybody else's. If you really want to be impressive and you want people to celebrate 50 years, then love each other like Christ loved the church. Submit yourself to one another and lift up the other person. Dedicate yourself to that person. Honor that person. Respect that person. And then the whole world will stand and applaud you because that's a marriage that we need to put on a pedestal. Because this is a problem. Uh, I heard this from another pastor. If you ask people, uh, young married couples, who, who do you know has a healthy marriage that you can shoot for, that you can set as a goal and, and ascribe to? And most couples are speechless because they don't know any of those couples. That's shameful for the church to say we don't have that type of relationships. We don't have those types of marriages. And the problem with that is, if I have a problem in my relationship, where am I going to go? Where am I going to go for guidance and encouragement and counseling if nobody that I know has one of those healthy relationships? I mean, other than Wayne and Kathy Lotz, because they have one, I believe. I believe they have one. They don't tell me, hey, we have one, so you can trust us. I see it in them. That's impressive. And note, that's a second marriage. Because here, here's the thing. Last Sunday, we were sitting at a, my friend Pastor Young in Peoria, his wedding. Uh, his first wife died a while back. and He's an Afri- African-American pastor. And boy, it was a lively, a lively service. A wedding party of 30 people. Ten groomsmen, ten bridesmaids, and we just couldn't hardly keep up. Three preachers, I think, were up there. But anyway, at the reception, we were sitting with a couple. This was a guy. He was a a teacher in their Sunday school class. Super guy. And a lady over here. And and so they started asking me questions, you know, I guess because we're about the 10%, weren't we? (laughs) I don't know. But anyway, so we were the minority. And they were just asking questions. And... uh, and I told him that I had been divorced and we'd only been married for a few years. And he said, you know, well, how do you reconcile that? And I said, well, let me tell you. Because I spent a lot of time on this. Nowhere in this, if you read the scriptures, it'll say this about divorce. There's only one 
There's only one unforgivable sin. Divorce isn't it. The only unforgivable sin is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Divorce is not blasphemy. It is a sin in most cases. In my case, it was a sin. But also the scriptures say that when you come to the Lord and you confess your sins and repent of your sins, that he will forgive your sins and he will cast them as far as the east is from the west. He will remember them no more. So when I came to the Lord and I confessed that I had sinned and that I uh, needed to repent and change my ways, he forgave that sin. And then when I met Paige, she became my first marriage. And the Sunday school teacher is like, that is really good stuff. And I said, well, I didn't come up with it. And then the lady sitting over here, she says, it makes me want to shout. Because my, my idea was, is that they've been looked down upon ever since. And then the man said, God definitely put you at our table today. Marriage is supposed to be a reflection of God's goodness and Christ's devotion to the church. And if we want to improve our homes and we want to improve the home life at our church, I think we need to be a little bit more loving, a little bit more gracious, a little bit more respectful of the woman or the man that God brought into your life to get you to the next level spiritually. For the sake of the children and the youth of this church, make that a priority, please. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray that I didn't say anything without your will without your stamp of approval. If I did, I pray that you'll convict me of it. But Lord, we have hurting people here that have been through painful divorces and they need to be forgiven. They need grace. They need to have their heads lifted back up to heaven. They need to to wash off the shame and the guilt that's upon them. And I pray that you will give them grace. But also, Lord, for the marriages that are still existent here, Lord, we celebrate them. And we pray that you will heal those relationships, that they will be like this Ephesians passage, that he will submit to her and she will submit to him and they will love each other as Christ loves the church. And I pray that their marriage will be lifted up on a pedestal for hope for those who struggle. Lord, we need more models of hope in this world. We pray that you will improve the homes, Lord, that we represent and the home of this church. And I pray, Lord, that the world will watch us and they will see this change of heart in us and they will be attracted to Christ because of what they see occurring in our marriages. Heal us, Father. Heal us. For the sake of this dying world, we pray it. And for the hope of our children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, as we stand and pray, we'll be singing our closing. But if you want me to pray with you, I'd be more than happy to. If, if you want me to pray for you and your spouse, come on down. I'll do that too. We have elders that can help. But we want to encourage you and support you in whatever, whatever level or season you're in as a marriage. But let's stand as we sing.
Well, we got through that song quick, didn't we? I, I was afraid when I saw it and it said, I'll fly away. And I said, no, that's not to encourage divorce. No, no, that's not what that means. <laughs>